In the fifth season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great works of literature that have something to suggest to us about the nature of authenticity. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, authenticity is the quality of being real or true. The Delphic Oracle instructs, Know thyself. The gadfly, Socrates, tells us that the unexamined life is not worth living. To thine own self be true, writes the bard. The hermit of Sils Maria, Nietzsche, counsels us to avoid herd morality and instead to become who you are. Mark Twain offers up the sage advice that if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. And Kurt Cobain tells us, in a way that only he can, to come as you are. So what is it? What is authenticity? Well, no better place for some answers than to turn to the writers and the poets. This is the wisdom of... And this is episode three. Joyce's A Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man. I just wanted to start off this episode with a, a tale from my own very inauthentic youth. Uh, I guess a story so inauthentic that I didn't even really do it. I just thought about it. But I, I did long think about, you know, carrying around this book, Portraits and Artists as a Young Man, you know, not necessarily reading it, mind you, but just carrying it with me with, you know, the hope that someone would see me carrying it and then notice the title of it. And by some sort of weird osmosis or association, they would think of me as the titular artist, as a young man. Now, like I said, I never quite pulled it off. But if, you know, you could invent a time machine and go back to that 15-year-old guy, could you tell me what was this book actually about? That's a funny story. Well, for that 15-year-old guy, I'd start with a summary. So, Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man was written by James Joyce. It was published in 1916. Set in Ireland in the late 19th century, the story is a semi-autobiographical novel about the education and the growing up of a young Irishman, Stephen Dedalus, whose background actually has quite a bit in common with Joyce's. At the heart of the story is Stephen's rejection of his religious upbringing and his growing confidence as a writer and as an artist. But the book's significance does not lie only in its portrait of a sensitive and complicated young man or in its use of autobiographical detail. More than this, portrait is Joyce's calculated attempt to create an original kind of novel that does not rely on conventional narrative techniques. More than some 80 years after its issuing, a portrait of an artist as a young man continues to be regarded as a central text of early 20th century modernism.
So if I can briefly reintroduce my 15-year-old self, he would have taken modernism on its face, uh, you know, being, you know, something that was of the moment with a healthy look towards the future. So imagine his confusion when he found out that the quintessential literary modernist, James Joyce, spent so much time looking backwards. So what role do ancient myths play in his writing? Yeah, they play a very important role. I mean, Portrait of an Artist makes several allusions to classical mythology. But I think the most significant and revealing one is the myth of Daedalus and Icarus. I mean, most obviously, of course, is the name that Joyce gives to his central character. Here he clearly means to link Stephen Daedalus to the Greek hero. Now, who was Daedalus exactly? Well, he was a kind of builder or architect, a real creative person, in fact. And what he did at the behest of his king was build a labyrinth, an elaborate maze on the island of Crete to imprison the great monster, the Minotaur. But soon afterwards, Daedalus and his son Icarus, they displeased the king, and so he confined them both to the labyrinth. Now it turned out that because this labyrinth was so complex, even Daedalus couldn't find a way out. However, because he was so creative, he eventually figured something out. What he did was he constructed wings out of wax and feathers so that he and Icarus could escape by flight. However, in spite of his father's warnings, because he was carried away by this amazing feeling of freedom, soon Icarus began to fly too high, too close to the sun, and so his waxen wings melted. When this happened, he plummeted to the sea and died. Daedalus, though, managed to fly to safety. Okay, so why does Joyce allude to this Greek myth? Well, let's start with the idea of the labyrinth or the maze. What is a maze? A maze is convoluted. It's full of dead ends. There's no clear direction. And so obviously it's something that you get lost in. Now, I think it's obvious Joyce wants us to see the young Stephen in this sort of predicament. He's stuck in the maze of his school and his hometown. Like the mythological Daedalus when he's first wandering around the labyrinth, Stephen, well, he meanders down the hallways of his school and drifts around the streets of Dublin in confusion. Everything, his past, his family, his city, his religion, his own thoughts, all of it, conspires to keep him from finding his own direction in life. He drifts like the barren shell of the moon, to paraphrase the novel. This is, after all, what a maze does. It keeps one in a state of disorientation, and it confounds efforts to escape, to break free. Now, there's only one way out of this, he thinks. Like Daedalus and Icarus, who take flight above their prison, Stephen also eventually soars above the confines of his life in Dublin. Like Daedalus, he finally fashions his own wings and in his own way conquers gravity. 
In other words, what this ascension means is that he's no longer going to walk down corridors and paths set before him. He's no longer tied down with leaden feet to his ancestral roots and stifled by the religious conformity demanded of him by society. No, for him it is enough that our fathers believed, to quote Oscar Wilde. Like a griffin, now Stephen makes his element the rarefied air. I mean, Stephen basically says all of this himself, including making reference to this aspect of taking flight. He says, quote, When the soul of a man is born in this country, there are nets flung at it to hold it back from flight. You talk to me of nationality, language, religion. I shall try to fly by those nets. End of quote. Stephen then has to leave everything behind in order to find himself, to actively shape the self that he is, but in such a way that it's all deracinated from his Irish heritage. And finally, we should notice that, like Daedalus, who's not only an architectural marvel, but ingenious in his creation of wings from wax, Stephen is also trying to um, manifest the creative person he is, his artistic vocation. In his case, though, it's of course not wings that he creates, but poetry and art. The problem is, though, that Stephen's been inhibited in showing his creativity. And that's because his Ireland is decayed and traditional and always looking backwards rather than innovating. In this sense, to quote Stephen, it's a sow that eats its pharaoh. In other words, instead of nurturing its artists, Ireland destroys them. This is why he has to break free in order to be able to truly create. I mean, he says it himself. He says, quote, I will try to express myself in some mode of life or art as freely as I can. End of quote. Okay, but wait, maybe I'm wrong about Joyce's use of the myth. That's to say, although sometimes we can see Stephen as that crafty, successful Daedalus, maybe at the end of the day, he's actually meant to stand for the younger Icarus, the ill-fated son who, dizzy in his freedom, flies too high and plunges into the sea. I mean, at the end of the novel, Stephen is not a complete success story. There is a kind of void created by his rebellion. In venturing too far out alone, in trying to be completely self-sufficient in his thinking, in his total self-absorption, he exiles himself and leaves everyone behind. Maybe most importantly, he leaves his father behind. Like Icarus, Stephen has not heeded his father's guidance, as problematic as their relationship has been for him throughout his life. And can you truly come to understand yourself and create your own life without recognizing the source from which you came? Actually, I think Stephen somewhat unconsciously recognizes this that he's spiritually fatherless. I think it's why, as he's preparing to leave Ireland, 
he's made to call out in the final sentence of the novel, quote, Old Father, stand me now and ever in good stead. End of quote. You know, maybe Stephen ought to have seen the maze of his life not like a prison that needs to be escaped from, like Daedalus did, but more like, well, a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage for self-discovery. Maybe he took flight and cut himself off from everything, including his family, a little too early. Maybe those meandering paths would have actually led to purposeful ones, the closer they got him to the center of his labyrinth. I mean, symbolically speaking, this is what a labyrinth is. It's not something to be avoided, but a journey one must take to discover one's own center, one's source, which might include one's own personal minotaur. Only once one has made that difficult journey to the heart of one's wellspring and roots should one make one's way out of the labyrinth. And the way back out does mark a transition and a rebirth, yes, but only because it carries with it the acceptance of one's native childbed, the soil from which one sprung up. Throughout this story, there are often these things mentioned that are kind of things that I, I think it's hinted at that the main character, Stephen Dedalus, should be dedicated to, often externally enforced. There are ideas of the family, church, nationalism, asceticism, even moments of hedonism. But I, I wonder, is, is the point of the novel of when he makes that turn towards art and aesthetics, and what does that say about his authentic self? Yeah, so I think Stephen's turn to art at the expense of everything else says a lot about his authenticity. Stephen clearly takes art to be of the highest value. Um, nothing else matters as much. Now, this is really interesting. It's interesting because I think most of us believe that moral value trumps most other values, that it's the most important thing. But I wonder, why should this be the case? What about the non-moral part of life? Doesn't this matter? And by the way, when I say non-moral, I don't mean immoral. I just mean other values that have nothing to do with moral ones. So wouldn't we be missing out on important things in life if all we did was concern ourselves with moral action? Like, I don't know, uh, sacrificing loving relationships, um, engagement with nature, and, well, creative projects? I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think moral goodness is just one aspect of the good things in a human life. And so to live like a, a moral saint, however noble that might be, is to, well, live an impoverished human life, a not very comprehensive one. I think Joyce gets us thinking about some of these things. But you know what? Now that I reflect on it, maybe he's actually saying something more radical than this even. I mean, what Stephen does is he ultimately rejects any values, mostly moral and religious ones, that contradict his aesthetic ones. In other words, his desire to become an artist 
requires self-exile. That's to say, a removal from all other values and influences, including all other people. So, this isn't someone who sacrifices some moral value for some other values, but rather it's someone who sacrifices most moral value all for aesthetic value. Actually, in this way, Stephen reminds me a little bit of the French painter Gauguin. Basically, Gauguin left, or to put it more truthfully, um, deserted his family in order to travel to Tahiti to devote himself to a kind of painting that he believed he could only make happen there. In other words, he turned his back on his familial obligations, his moral duties, in order to make art. The result of his single-minded devotion to aesthetic value was that he hurt his family. In other words, his single-mindedness meant that he neglected moral value. Now, is this a bad or unadmirable thing? Well, it's not so certain that it is. I mean, again, why should moral value have the last word on what makes a person and their life a good and admirable one? Gauguin, after all, was someone who, in his passionate single-mindedness for artistic creation, made real sacrifices. He went hungry. He lost sleep. He thwarted convention. He gave up material benefits. He worked hard, and so on. He chose what to him constitutes the best and most meaningful life. And I think we can admire him for that, despite his inequities even though he deserted his family. I wonder if Stephen is that different. After all, he alienates himself from religion and from family in order to venture out and attempt to try to manifest entirely for himself his aesthetic calling, regardless of the consequences to other aspects of his life. Like Gauguin, he too is prepared to make his own sacrifices, which he will have to make when he refuses to accept prevailing opinions or to conform to the ways of the majority. Again, it's strange not to think of this as a worthy and meaningful life, despite its lack of moral and social considerations. In our last Bob Dylan episode, we referenced the idea that there's nothing new under the sun. But is that really true? After millennia and millennia of collective literary output, did Joyce and his ilk, in fact, find a, a new or a different way of expression through the novel? Oh, there's no doubt about that. But before I get into that, I want you to try to imagine what it was like to be an English writer before 1604. Now, why 1604 exactly? Well, here's why. That was the date of the first English dictionary. So imagine what it would have been like to write free from the rules and limits the dictionary provides. Wouldn't your freedom of expression have increased dramatically? Actually, it's interesting. Shakespeare wrote mostly before the arrival of the dictionary. I don't know. Maybe this is why he's almost unparalleled in his inventiveness with language. But what does this have to do with Joyce? 
Well, I think that the biggest hurdle for Joyce to overcome in his quest for authenticity and originality was, well, language itself. Despite being one of the greatest writers the the language has ever had, Joyce was from early on just not satisfied writing in English. And this is because he felt blocked by the rules, conventions, and constructs of his mother tongue. And not only that, but he saw the English language as overly derivative of and overly steeped in history and tradition. Because of all this, at one point he called trying to write torturous. So he tried to express himself in undiluted ways and in ways where he was not held bondage to a preordained system. And obviously, he did this brilliantly. Actually, Joyce's concerns and struggles with language had an influence on the philosopher Roland Barthes. Now, he's significant here because because of his emphasis on what he called zero-degree writing, or the neutral writing mode. You see, somewhat like Joyce, Barthes noticed that there was always something more in literature that goes beyond language. That's to say, there was always a world and history in it. Ah, an ethic of language, as he called it. That's why he advocated for a kind of neutral writing, one stripped of convention, and so a language free to dwell in a more open and ambiguous space. Actually, one of Barth's own examples of this sort of writing is to be found in Camus and in his innovative novel, The Stranger. Here, there's clearly a kind of colorless writing and transparent form of speech, and Camus uses it to great effect, much like Hemingway does in employing his well-known iceberg technique. You know, Maybe another way of expressing some of these ideas is to, well, compare classical with modern painting. I mean, one of the reasons why there was a move away from classical representational painting was because of the invention of the camera and the photograph. Well, classical painters were technically brilliant, their paintings, like those of landscapes, became somewhat extraneous with the advancement of modern photography. So what happened? Well, painters turned inward rather than outwards. And so we got movements like um, surrealism and abstract expressionism. Well, with such movements came a, a new personal freedom and amazing new spaces of exploration. And again, that's because painters were no longer tied to traditional ways of painting, like employing classical perspective and so on. Well, it was the same sort of thing with writing, and Joyce was at the head of it. Writers of the early 20th century, like Joyce, began to realize that words could be just as flexible and autonomous as paint could be. And so experimentation and innovation took precedence over formula, um, tradition, and dogma. 
I'd like a language which is above all languages, Joyce said. Well, he made that happen. He brought language to new levels of expression and overcame conventions that had previously governed the novel as a literary genre. Therein lies his real authenticity and originality. to the wisdom of podcast if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod our next episode here's a hint you are all phonies <laughs>